GBC Podcasts, local voices on demand. Hello, thanks for listening to the Gibraltar Today podcast. I'm Jonathan Scott. An epic 27-day mission covering almost 10,000 kilometres across the Sahara. Daphne Magrail Trico and Jinsen Lima of the charity Generous Hearts will join us. What if Gibraltar's military interests clashed with its civilian interests? Lawyer Charles Gomez addressed the point in a lecture to University of Gadis students. He'll join us. As will the president of the group Gibraltarians for a Multilingual Society, who have just celebrated their first anniversary. The president is Manuel Enriles, and he'll report back on their first annual general meeting. But first, he's taken a deep dive into previously classified documents and has brought us some really engaging stories this week. Jonathan Sacramento is here to talk to us about the Gibraltar of 30 years ago. And today he's got a piece on the tragic death of Royal Gibraltar Regiment Captain Frank Galliano in 1993, which resulted in diplomatic tensions with Spain. The papers he's seen reveal that the death drew attention to the presence of on-duty regiment soldiers in Spain without its permission. Well, that is what transpires uh, according to the documents that I've been reading. There's a few to and fro's uh, between foreign office officials circa February and March 1992, and they talk about the diplomatic falling out with Spain. In fact, there's one letter which is translated into English coming from the FCO's um, the FCO's uh, equivalent in Spain, the um, foreign the foreign ministry, the Spanish foreign ministry, uh, where they speak in very, very uh, harsh tones about uh, the evidence that is before them, which show uh, um, the, 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 the fact that the, the UK or the MOD has had soldiers exercising in Sierra Nevada. Now, the thing is that the the Brits in their coded language, in their um, uh, diplomatic language, were calling it, uh, what were the words that they used? Organized leisure activities. They decided and they'd agreed to, to, to call it organized leisure activities. But all those regiments, officers were there on duty, on active duty. Right. Uh, so, of course, uh, they wouldn't have had permission to have been on active duty, and, and, and therein lies the problem. Well, there's a few to and fro's, there's a few letters going back and forth about whether the Spaniards were aware and sort of turned a blind eye to it, and whether they were... But, but really, I mean, once it all became official, because there was a death, and the Spaniards had no option uh, to but to uh, just be very clear about the fact that this is... Uh, you don't have any official permission to be here. You don't have any official permission to be carrying out a military exercise on Spanish soil. And therefore, we have to present a verbal complaint or a note verbal. And uh, and it came with a threat. It came with a threat. Uh, they, they said, uh, if, you, if this happens again, we'll have to restrict access to all military personnel coming from Gibraltar. Claro. Um, Jonathan, it's the latest in uh, a series of reports from the National Archives. Periodically, uh, 
in Kew Gardens where they hold um, these previously um, classified documents. Uh, periodically, uh, a, a new batch is declassified, and and you've been you went to London mm-hmm. to look through documents that had a relevance to Gibraltar and you've picked out uh, these five stories as being of particular interest. You've ran them across the week. They've given us, I think, a really good insight Mm. into the Gibraltar politics of the day because, of course, these uh, relate to stories that we knew about, but they give us a a fresh angle because it's correspondence that was uh, private between... Uh, the Foreign Office in Gibraltar and and its and and it and their colleagues in the UK. Um, uh, so so it sort of it, it gives us a new angle on those stories. Mm, absolutely, it gives us a, a perspective and some characters start uh, emerging throughout all the uh, the the documents and the correspondence between Foreign Office officials. Uh, there's there's one whose name is Mercedes Rico who is the uh, equivalent in the Spanish Ministry of Foreign Affairs who's writing to British diplomats all the time uh, and um, and they make reference to her uh, regularly in documents between FCO officials in London and in Gibraltar. Uh, The way that they talk about uh, Gibraltar, Gibraltarians and the Gibraltar Chief Minister Joe Bolsano who was in office at the time has a lot of colour to it uh, and it's uh, fascinating to delve into these archives and see what was in the minds of people 30 years ago. Well, I know you've got a lot of, you've had a lot of positive feedback on these pieces mm. uh, because uh, I think people generally like nostalgia. But in this case, we, we are getting a, a fresh insight, as I said, into uh, events that we that we lived and that we're familiar with, but where we're sort of understanding mm. a new dimension to them. Uh, um, so, congratulations! Thank you, Thank as, you. as a as a an avid news consumer mm-hmm. as well as a colleague, um, and uh, for somebody who wants to um, you know take in a little bit more of what you've just said. You've got five stories on the GBC website and you went through it all with Rosa Stengo on Viewpoint last night. That's right. And you also picked the brains of now Sir Joe Bosano uh, because he was chief minister uh, for these events and and Mm. he's mentioned in in, in all of them. Uh, Absolutely. And and one of the interesting things is that uh, I actually was able to yesterday put to Sir Joe Bosano one particular document which he had never seen when he was chief minister. This is the one that had a a, a dramatically bad prediction for the finance centre. That's right, which was compiled by by Peter Brook, who was the financial and development secretary at the time for the foreign office. And he compiled this report, but when Sir Joe Bosano asked for it, it was redacted and sanitised, and a sanitised version was given to him, which omitted a very dramatic uh, doomsday scenario for the finance centre. And he's got to see it for the first time now, 30 years later, when when we've delved it out of the archives. Gibraltar Today with Jonathan Scott. Is it in the UK's military interests that the airfield at North Front and the port area become subject to Schengen 
controls. It's a question that was posed by lawyer Charles Gomez in a lecture at the University of Gibraltar about the interface of military and civilian interests. And Mr. Gomez joins us now in the studio. Good afternoon and um, and, and thank you for being here. Uh, thank you for having me. A number of interesting questions that, uh, that you discussed with students of the University of Cadiz. Quite. I mean, the, every year we have at least one uh, lecture of the University of Cadiz at the University of Gibraltar. Last year, for example, we had an extremely topical one on uh, Ukraine, uh, and the speaker was a, uh, a professor from the University of Odessa. Uh, the previous year we had a, a, a talk which I gave myself on the concept, a little-known concept, of British imperial law, which is the relationship that Britain has with its uh, overseas territories and with territories such as the sovereign bases in Cyprus. Uh, so they're always very well attended. And uh, occasionally we also speak, I'm also asked to uh, uh, intervene in, in, in debates and so on, in, in Cadiz itself. You've got a, a sort of a, a, a relationship a, with them? I'm no? an associate professor of the, of the Faculty of International Relations and International Law. So, um, uh, you, sort of your day job is as a lawyer? Yes. I, uh, I, I, and I, this is an extension of that, I it's suppose? It's uh, uh, obviously a very much a part-time, unpaid, unremunerated uh, thing that I do. Obviously, it's a matter of interest to me. Uh, the University of Cadiz has a particular interest in Gibraltar because of its uh, uh, location. Uh, and, um, and for many years now, they have been focusing on all manner of things uh, to do with Gibraltar in, in an academic and dispassionate manner. So the the um, uh, line that we take is this is not political. Uh, we're not interested in politics. There are perhaps too many people who are interested to make a living, a handsome living, out of politics. And uh, what we do is we analyze, assess uh, uh, in, a, in a calm, dispassionate, non-partisan way issues of, of interest. But it has a bearing on politics, obviously. Of course, because all um, at the end of the day, the law is the uh, emanates from political decisions, whether it be the constitution or any legislation and so on. So there is an interconnection, but there is certainly a space for calm uh, uh, discussion, uh, calm investigation, and an avoidance of the, the hubris, which is often uh, and growingly uh, so related to to day-to-day -day politics. And you, in looking at this, uh, looking at, at the interplay of the UK's military interests in Gibraltar and the and Gibraltar's civilian interests, uh, there are a number of aspects in the Gibraltar constitution that um, concern you, I suppose, if that, if that is... Uh, all, all, that, all that sort of... You talk about which, which um, perhaps are underappreciated is the point I think that you made in, yes. in your talk. Yes, it's not so much concern because the, the law is what it is. And um, a, a, as a lawyer, my job, my day job and my uh, approach to these things is to analyse, understand what the law is and interpret it. But so it, it's not concern, but there is perhaps some concern in the fact that um, so many people do not seem to appreciate the uh, r relationship of interface between the United Kingdom and, uh, and Gibraltar in, in, in legal constitutional terms. There is um, perhaps 
uh, a misunderstanding to the effect that the Gibraltar government, for example, is uh, headed by by the chief minister uh, uh, from time to time. Whoever's the chief minister at any given time, that's not the case. Uh, since the uh, always and also in the latest constitution, it is the governor who is the head of the Gibraltar government. But you, you yourself make the point that um, the, 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 there's a great deal of self-government. Oh, yeah. And, you know, and, 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 and uh, you're talking about sort of reserve powers, but not just reserve powers. Yeah, there are reserve powers, but the reserve powers are, are massive. I mean, in terms of uh, uh, they they dot the Constitution. They're, they're in at least three places. So it's, uh, uh, there was obviously great concern among the uh, UK... Uh, uh, legal draftsmen in 2005-2006 to ensure that it was very clear that we are giving uh, uh, the Gibraltar Council, the Gibraltar Parliament, uh, all these powers, but we also have all these reserve powers, including one which is at the very end, it's potentially, I suppose, amusing, that you, you really have to read into the Constitution to find uh, these reserve powers and the royal prerogative, which is the uh, power of the the crown, uh, that of course means the the British government to legislate in Gibraltar for good government, peace, good government, and good order in, in Gibraltar is at the very end of the constitution. So everyone, anyone who is tired when reading the constitution might never get to the end. <laughs> and in fact, the punchline is there, which is. Essentially, I, I don't want to be frivolous, of course, but essentially one might be forgiven for saying, well, I'm giving you all these powers, but then again, I'm not. Uh, or, or I could take them back whenever I want yes, to. Yes, and I, at any moment in time, I can, I can uh, legislate, I can take executive action. Uh, and of course, I suppose, so long as Gibraltar and the British governments are on the same page, Gibraltar is, in an everyday sense self-governing and i suppose what you're getting at is uh, if the civilian interests clash were to clash yeah. for example not exclusively but we have obviously the the case of the treaty um uh, which has been negotiated for our future relationship with the eu should uh, in that scenario should the interests of the civilian population be different to the british military interests um, then that becomes particularly interesting. It, the, those reserve powers, absolutely, and... absolutely, and 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 to be honest, the the uh, from pro, uh, the point of view of an observer, rather than looking at it purely from uh, uh, legal interpretation uh, point of view, uh, by now I think the man in the street is becoming a little bit anxious as to the the lack of information that there is as to why the the treaty so-called, ha hasn't been signed yet. And, uh, and, and of course, we're told that negotiations are very uh, confidential. But then again, one might think, well, there are negotiations every day of the year in every, among countries and among big companies and so on, and they don't normally take uh, this long. Uh, but what is most concerning, and, and the reason why I thought it was appropriate to dwell on this, is the fact that there is no information that we, we keep being told that uh, uh, this is uh, confidential as part of a negotiating process. And therefore, one starts trying to put two and two together. And uh, 
uh, and uh, again dispassionately, we're told that uh, the concern is uh, boots uh, on the ground, but we're not told uh, exactly what that means. Uh, and of course, as uh, uh, Gibraltarians uh, who, who've been through what we have in the last hundred uh, sixty years or so, we immediately become uh, nervous about the, these concepts, these these words which are pregnant with meaning. Uh, if boots on the ground. If I may, Charles, just sure. before we, because we've got about a minute left, if I can ask you two more questions and ask you for fairly um, short answers. Uh, you, you pose the question then, what happens if uh, if the UK's military interests, um, what if it, what is it, what would happen should they not want uh, for the airfield in particular, but also the port, um, if they would not want those to become subject to Schengen controls? You didn't actually state a view on whether no. the UK military do or don't? Well, I, I don't know. It'd be, it'd be good. I think it'd be a decent thing for the British military to say whether, in fact, they have any objection uh, to uh, Gibraltar joining Schengen. They've been silent. And, uh, and, and secondly, um, should there be a difference of opinion between what Gibraltar as uh, Gibraltar citizens as represented by the chief minister um, what they want and what the UK military want um, and there's a clash um, is, is there a higher authority that can be appealed to or court? No, I think the military interest will always prevail in Gibraltar as it did in 1941 with evacuation and it did in it is done on many occasions and ultimately it's up to the British government to refuse to enter into a treaty. So it's as simple as that, and there's no appeal to, to anybody uh, that, that I can see. Um, so, so that would be the end of the matter. But as I say, it would be decent for the Minister of Defence to say uh, that, uh, that they have no objection to Gibraltar being in Schengen. On Radio Gibraltar and on GBC Television, Gibraltar Today with Jonathan Scott. We're going to talk uh, about an amazing almost 10,000 kilometre charity mission with generous hearts in just a moment but uh, I'm surprised by this but time flies the Gibraltarians for a multilingual society group is a year old uh, I remember como si fuera ayer when you were formed um, good afternoon to the president of that group Manuel Enriles thank you for joining us but uh, you, you've held an AGM and uh, and you've been around for a year already. Sí, como dices tú, parece que fue ayer, pero it's it's gone by very 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 quickly. Uh, but so much has happened in that space of time in the last twelve months. It's incredible. We, we I mean, um, we couldn't have imagined in our wildest dreams uh, the journey that we've been through in the last twelve months, which has has seen us build a lot of um, um, uh, links with universities around the world uh we've actually been invited to to um university of cambridge twice in in the last 12 months uh we've had the um the historical social linguistic network representatives coming to gibraltar to to learn about our language um plus what is happening locally i think uh, we've seen over the past year we've seen uh, definitely seen a change in society with respect to languages at least a greater awareness of it. I think it. you were fo you formed the group at the right time. No, I think I think so. I really I really do think so. I think uh, for a long time, I think people 
have uh, have been thinking about this. I've definitely had that conversation many, many a time over you know many many uh, past many years uh, about language loss. Language loss is really what what um, motivated us and what got us going. Uh, I remember, in fact, obviously as a, as a teacher, uh, um, having taught Spanish for practically thirty years in in um, in uh, Bayside. Uh, Bayside School. Um, I noticed the de deterioration in the, you know, the level of Spanish um, among students. Um, but it was actually some uh, 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 a GBC, funnily enough, a GBC um, um, a program that actually brought it home. Um, I think it was back in 2015. It was James Nish who actually went out to find out how much uh, Spanish or Llanito uh, young people knew when he went to the careers fair. Um, down at the Tercentenary Hall, and um, and watching that and realizing, you know, how hard it was for a lot of them just to string a few words uh, of Spanish or Janito together, uh, really made me realize that we had to do something about it. You know, uh, that it wasn't just naran cosas mía; it was mm. actually a reality. And the broadcaster itself has relaxed. Uh, it, it's, it, you know, we, we, we <laughs> that, hear more Janito now is, on GBC and noticeable, And in fact, it is uh, very refreshing because ultimately uh, the, the national broadcaster, ha I think, has a responsibility in that respect to reflect our society. And if we just reflect the sort of the English speaking part of our society, which obviously is a very important element. Is the most element. formal one, the, uh, more, the, more the formal, language of business, the administrative, of education, the education uh, politi politics, etc., etc. But uh, there is the other side that really wasn't coming through, or it's not been coming through yeah. very often. Uh, so, Vroma. Sí, sí, no, no. Y, y, y mismamente la manera en que, en que hablamos, ¿no? Porque, some, some phrases just come to you sí, in Spanish, ¿no? Sí, sí. Y a veces también que no... Uh, not solamente, uh, uh, I mean, Janito has been used very often for humor, which obviously it works perfectly well because people feel identified. Cuando tú vas y ves un play, tan, it's, a, it's a comedy, it's a farce, y están hablando en, en, en Janito, no? It, it makes it particular to this place people, that we call people home. People identify with that. But it's not only a language that is used for humor. Uh, our family tragedies... Uh, our sad moments are also shared in Janito at home. It's a language of the home, language of the family, the language of, of socializing. Um, well, shout out now to Kevin Ruiz because he that's one of the things that he has said I know. for a number of years, that he wanted to do City Pulse always in Janito yeah, yeah, yeah. because it allowed people to tell their stories in a way that they felt most comfortable N doing. Natural. I mean, I, I've, I've always struggled with the, the question, um, what is your native language. Para mí eso siempre ha sido una pregunta muy difícil de contestar. I grew up in a family where uh, my mother was Spanish, therefore the, the language of the home was mainly uh, Spanish, Anito Spanish. Uh, my father was Gibraltarian, but didn't really have a, an education in English. So that's what I grew up with. But from a very early age, I was in, a, 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 in nursery. In fact, I started nursery at the uh, tender age of 10 months. So basically <laughs> when you're starting to learn. So I started learning English at the same time. Um, but ultimately, my native language, where I feel most comfortable, is in, in, a, in, a, in a situation where I'm talking Janito. And uh, something I need to clarify, I think very often we don't know what we mean by Janito. 
what we what we have very often, or what we do very often, and is what we're doing now, is a code switch, uh, where we code switch, not between Spanish and Llanito. It's not standard Spanish. We do not speak standard Spanish as a as a regular, you know, form of communication. We do learn it, and we then can use it with They, they 
led a very exciting uh, mission uh, and they're here to tell us about it now. Uh, thank you, uh, Daphne McGrail-Trico, for joining us and also Jinson Lima. Uh, great to have you along. Um, what an adventure, almost 10,000 kilometres. Thank you for having us again, Jonathan. Yeah, it was uh, 10,000. It was thrilling. It's a thrilling ride. And uh, we left on the 28th of, uh, of December and we just arrived uh, last, uh, last Tuesday. So, yeah, it's been a, a long journey, but a very exciting one. So the new year you spent en route? My God, the new year we spent in, uh, and in the desert, in the Sahara Desert, camping, under a beautiful um, sky full of stars. No, yeah. We ended up seeing what we, we usually see. Like, it was like a dome of stars. Never in my life had I seen so, claro, so many because stars. because there's no light pollution at all. Nothing That's at right. all. There was nobody. Well, in fact, as we were doing the, uh, the Sahara Desert Challenge, we, uh, there were times where we, we, we saw nobody at all. And if we did get, come across a village, it was just a, a, a few people that, uh, that we got to see. And, and tell us what, why Generous Hearts, we've, we've talked about the charity a little bit before, but what was your mission? Well, the, uh, the thing was that uh, Generous Hearts' uh, part in this Sahara Desert Challenge uh, took place a little bit later. We, uh, we were invited by Jinsen and Concesa. They are four-wheel, four-by-four uh, four enthusiasts, and they were doing this Sahara uh, Desert Challenge uh, on the 28th of December, and they invited us to go along with them. And... Uh, Jensen, tell them about it. Well, Jonathan, I mean, this all started for me about 20 years ago when I first visited uh, Mohammed in the south of Morocco. I saw firsthand to have a, the, the needs of the community there and I was just drawn into it. And since then, I've been doing, on a personal level with my wife, Francesa, we've been doing lots of uh, projects and charity work on a personal basis. And like Daphne has said, we were approached by by them. Um, they wanted to join us on, on this trip. We did the Sahara Desert Challenge on the ninth edition, which was last year. But there was going to be a lot more coverage of Mauritania this year on the 10th edition. And uh, Daphne and Headley, you know, they approached us. We, we, we are friends and uh, we said, why not? You know, it, it, it's, a, it's a great combination. We've got a, a good background, a solid background on, on contacts and... Um, things that we've done there in the past, and uh, we joined forces together. We raised some funds, which are entirely uh, put towards um, what we can deem as uh, specific um, help to, to specific families in, in specific areas. So what, you took cash and then bought things for them there? We took lots of toys we, because we were limited to Jinsen's car and there were four of us and we had to take camping equipment, we had to take the food as well that we would need for, for example, because we did two days camping one after another. So we were limited to the amount of things that we could take. I mean, we took very little clothes uh, as well. So all the toys that we took were all little tiny toys like Peppa Pig, Paw Patrol, you know, all those little toys and we also took a lot of uh, balls which were not inflated and we would inflate them as we would go along and then once being there we bought lots of sweets and something that the children asked which they would run after the car calling Stilo Stilo we didn't know what it was at the beginning a pen a pen, a pen. Right. yeah and uh, so we bought pens we bought hundreds of pens you know and all this uh, with the money that uh, uh, Jensen was able to collect from different sponsors like Masbro and uh, Ford 
Ford Ibex. and Ibex and also the uh, the people, the community of Gibraltar who help us when we have a, a car boot sale, which we're having one next, uh, not this Sunday, but then the following. We have a Gati very soon and, you know, all this money is raised uh, that the community help us raise is used for events like this. So, yes, we took money, we bought mattresses, we bought blankets, we bought a lot of uh, groceries, we bought a lot of food, we bought a, a, a big TV for this uh, young boy. Uh, well, he's not that young anymore, but Jinson met him when he was 14, now he's 27. And uh, so we were able to buy him a, a big TV, which was he was, you know, over the moon with. Yeah. And uh, we, when you've been on in the studio previously, uh, your daughter Kelly has been here with you, yeah. and she was updating oh. uh, your Facebook page, the the charity Generous Hearts Facebook page, yes, um, or, with photos and videos, and and it really seemed to generate a, a lovely following, no? Yes, it did. It did. I mean, she's done a, a wonderful, wonderful job. job. She's done a wonderful job because she would, uh, um, you know, the diary was there every day of every th- every single thing that we did what we did what we what we bought uh, the the challenges in the uh, in the the driving i mean because there was a lot of driving involved in the uh, sahara desert challenge we drove through dunes we drove through uh, beaches there was one beach that we drove through which was like driving from gibraltar to malaga so just imagine you know on the beach all the time so I mean, it was amazing. It was amazing, really good. Beautiful. Yeah. yeah. Um, well, we've had some comments on on your upon your return. What an incredible achievement! Veronica says uh, it must have been a great adventure. She's very proud of you all, and she says that she was crying when she was <laughs> writing the message because your videos have showed people uh, who are very grateful for for what you guys have been able to deliver for mm-hmm. them, which mm-hmm. is really heartwarming. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Janet said. Uh, welcome home. What a life changing, life changing, and amazing adventure. Well done. Lots more comments, but um, but you must have felt really supported. You no? know, uh, Jonathan. Um, people wanted more. People wanted to hear more about uh, our, our adventure, you know, because that's what it was. It was a, it was an, a, an adventure, and like you say, Kelly was writing all this information, and she would say, "Mom, I need more people asking me when am I going to put it on? You know, when when is the ne- next newsletter um, information going on?" So yeah, yeah, it was. Um, she did a fantastic okay, job as b- well. Before I let you go, uh, Daphne, your daughter Kelly surprised you this morning oh, yes. by nominating <laughs> you. As the morning hero, if you weren't yeah. tuned in this morning, have a little listen. Their selfless dedication to humanitarian work in Africa is truly inspiring. From delivering aid to remote villages to making a real impact on individual lives, their generosity knows no bounds. They've become beacons of hope, embodying the spirit of giving. I'm immensely proud of their efforts, and I believe they deserve this recognition for their positive change they bring to the world. Oh, my God, I'm getting so emotional. <laughs> oh, a oh. lovely message from your daughter there, and very well deserved. Beautiful, beautiful. How lovely. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I got all emotional, yeah, I did. <laughs> <laughs> Guys, um, if anybody wants to support Generous Hearts, the best place to go is Info your, your Facebook page. Info at Get in contact with us. You want to give us a donation. You want us to, to collect clothes, toys. I mean, we're having the carpet sale, like I said. Okay. So that's we, where we are. We've got a Revolut number that we'll 
put on our social media as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and Jensen, thank you so yeah. much uh, for joining us and um, and you know, big pat on the back to you as well for or, all of those years of selfless uh, charity work. Uh, without, thank you, uh, Jonathan. Yeah. Thank you. Uh, just want to say that we wouldn't have gone this far had it not been for Jensen's driving. He's an expert driver and Concesa, who's a co-pilot, I mean... We would have got lost without her. So. Dream team. Oh yeah. Spirit of adventure. Spirit of adventure. That, that's the name of the of the team. Yeah. Excellent. Mm. Boy, Nada, thank you so much, and and we look forward to talking to you again soon. Thanks for listening to those highlights from Gibraltar today. I'm Kelly M. Borge, the show's producer. We're live on Radio Gibraltar Monday to Friday from one to two, getting behind the headlines, and you can catch up here whenever you like. Until next time, have a good one. GBC Podcasts, local voices on demand.